Welcome to the Illuminating Primary Care Podcast, a general practice podcast brought to you by Menlo Park Recruitment. Illuminating Primary Care is here to quiz primary care leaders to offer professional knowledge, experience and insight on the biggest topics in general practice. It's the podcast to listen to if you work in primary care. Welcome to the Illuminating Primary Care Podcast. Hello and welcome to today's episode of Illuminating Primary Care with Menlo Park Recruitment. Uh, My guest today is Dr. Sally Hambly. Um, who's got uh, very much a passion of supporting doctors to make life and career choices which put their well-being at the centre. Thank you for joining me today, Sally. If you could uh, give our listeners a little bit of an understanding as to who you are and what it is you do, that would be fantastic. Yeah, no, absolutely. So so I worked myself as a doctor in the NHS for 24 years. Didn't really follow a traditional route through medicine, so I I did a lot of junior doctor jobs back in the day when you could... You could make it up a bit more as you went along. We had a bit more freedom because I didn't really know what I wanted to do, to be honest with you. Okay. And then I went down the training route of general practice, but also developed a sideline interest in, well, I say sexual health. It was called GU medicine back then. Um, and then did run those two alongside one another probably for about three years. But then when I came back from my first maternity leave, I chose to carry on in the GU medicine because I was loving that job at the time. And then did that for probably about a decade switched over to medicine for the elderly because I had a little bit of a midlife career crisis. Um, Just never quite settled there. So heard about coaching and um, a friend of mine had gone along to a foundational coaching course and it just sounded so intriguing. I was just riveted by what she was saying. So I thought, well, I'll go and get myself some of that um, because I wasn't really quite sure I was at where I wanted to be. Um, and that was fantastically helpful. And I think they, there were two upshots from that. One was that I tweaked the role I was in at the time, um, which definitely suited me better, but also started training uh, to be a coach myself. Um, and I've now since left clinical medicine for, for the moment at least. And I have I work predominantly with um, medics who just don't quite know what they want to do with their career. Um, because I can relate to that. I had a lot of those feelings throughout my medical career of not just quite not quite sure where to go. Mm, um, yeah. So yeah, so that's where I'm at now. Fantastic. And you've been doing the coaching. I mean, you, you're available online, aren't you? You've, you're contactable on LinkedIn. But do you have a website or anything like that as well that people yeah. um, are able to well, utilize? Yeah, my website is being updated and, and sorted at the moment, but it's um it's should be about in the next week or two. Um, I spend a lot of time on LinkedIn, as you might have noticed. So that's yes, predominantly yes. Where, <laughs> um, <laughs> where I've been and predominantly where I've made my connections and, and networked and, and met lots of people through LinkedIn. So having been a, a social media avoider all of my life, I'm a little bit of a convert. <laughs> yes, LinkedIn works slightly differently, at least, yeah, doesn't it? You know, it does, it does. Uh, ads with merchandise that's uh, suitable for you and things like that. Yeah, yeah, um, exactly. Now, before we... Um, uh, started recording the podcast um, just for our listeners' benefit. Sally and I had, had liaised about some points that we thought would be really beneficial for our listeners to to learn more about. Um, now, the first of these, and this is what we're wanting Sally to be able to, to give us a bit of a deep dive into, is factors for doctors about things like recognising and acknowledging that so many doctors are unhappy in their careers currently and to understand that they're not alone in this. So, Sally, if you could kind of... Um, 
develop upon that a little bit further, please, um, just for our listeners, that'd be fantastic. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. I mean, I think, you know, unfortunately, there's been there's been quite a lot of work, quite a lot of surveys done, which, you know, are looking at, well, partly looking at burnout, but also looking at actually the number of doctors wanting to leave the NHS. And, and it's kind of across, across the board um, in terms of, you know, uh, within general practice, but also hospital doctors as well. Um, certainly, I think the RCGP survey from last year, I think it was about 39% of doctors are, are anticipating leaving general practice within the next five years. Um, wow. Does that include retirement? Or is, phenomenal. Is that... Yeah, it's a combination, that a, a combination. Um, okay. But also, I think there was a Pulse survey recently, which again looked at predominantly was looking at actually kind of younger GPs thinking of leaving as well. And I think, you know, there's a whole host of reasons for that. And I mention it really because I think when you're kind of questioning what you want to do in medicine, you can feel quite on your own. It can feel quite a lonely place to be. So I guess I just wanted to, you know, make the point that actually lots of people are are feeling in a similar position. So you're definitely not alone if you're questioning your career in medicine or you're just not sure whether it's sustainable with, you know, sustaining your own well-being um Mm. you're not on your own with it but i i think what can come into play and what i hear from doctors a lot is essentially this phenomenon called the sunk cost fallacy um sunk was that sorry yeah sunk sunk cost fallacy i think that's a term that's used in 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 various different industries actually but in terms of its what it means essentially is when you've you've invested so much to get to a certain point that actually even when you find yourself in a position whereby you're not really happy or it's not really working for you or you're not sure you're in the right environment because you've invested so much already the temptation is just to keep on going to justify keep trudging, what you've yeah, keep trudging yeah. To, yeah to justify what you've given and i think it's you know, certainly very relevant to you know to medics because by the time you get to be a gp you've already invested really heavily um, to get to that point. Oh, so Yeah, time you know, and energy. I mean, the amount of yeah. the length of time it takes to get to that yeah. point in terms of your qualifications, courses, exams, the, the stress yeah. that comes with that as well. It, you, you don't want to, yeah. for want of a better expression, throw it all away, do you? Yeah, I, I think it's absolutely that. I mean, even going back to just medical school in itself, you know, that's it's a very demanding degree to do. And, you know, mm. like you say, the, the, the time and the energy, the finances you invest as well, actually, to get through medical school. But then, yeah, you know, your junior doctor years as a foundation doctor and specialty trainee. I mean, it is all consuming, isn't it? You just give so much of yourself, you know, physically, emotionally, mentally, Um it, you know, it can become your world. And so it's quite hard when then, you know, when you get to a point where you think, I'm not sure this is quite working for me. Mm. And I think what can also kick in sometimes then is a bit of kind of either or thinking. So a bit of black and white. Well, either I carry on as as things are, or I completely jump ship, both of which or neither of which feels very comfortable. <laughs> so it's quite yeah. a scary position to find yourself in. And I think the risk is that then, you don't get started you don't start exploring actually what might work for you because the, the two those two options just seem too extreme and uncomfortable okay and in, in that regard do you find that that the, the sunk cost fallacy that you've mentioned does that tend to come into play in your experience have you seen that after a year of, of working in primary care or can it come into play a lot further along have you in your experience has it come 
different people's careers at very different times yeah i think i think it can come across at, at any time in your career to be honest with you i think it could even come across you know earlier in your career before before you've fully qualified or whatever you know even when you've invested going through medical school and I think there can be, you know, that weight of expectation on your shoulders as well, you know, be that your own expectations of yourself or perhaps sometimes it's that family expectation or, you know, societal expectations. I think there's a lot of that tied up in it. Um, and I think, the, you know, the further you go throughout it, what can happen sometimes is that you lose sight of who you are. And I think your identity becomes kind of enmeshed with your job title, essentially. Mm. Um, and again, that's quite difficult because then when you're not feeling happy in what you're doing, it feels even bigger than just questioning your, your job. It feels like you're almost questioning who you are. Um, yes. and, and, I, and again, I think that can happen at, at, at any stage. Okay. And is that what you feel leads to more reactive decisions and, and choices as opposed to proactive and something that might be healthier for somebody to make as a decision yeah I think I think because perhaps we lose sight of ourselves a bit and this certainly happened to me and I see it with you know the people I work with we, we can be quite good at thinking oh that doesn't work this doesn't work for me I'll, I'll go ahead and do that but without actually doing the next bit of work well a I think we don't necessarily fully understand the disconnects before we make the decisions um mm. But what, the other thing we often don't get ahead around is actually what do we want instead of that? Um, because I think when you start out, often you don't have a clear idea of what you want. And again, that feels quite scary and uncertain. So it's quite mm. hard to work towards something when you, you know, you've got no idea where you're working towards. And that's, I suppose, the basis of, you know, a lot of the work I do is actually working out what that is for somebody, because mm. that will be different for, for everybody. Um, yeah. But then it allows you to be more proactive um, in making your decisions rather than just reactive to like, I don't like this. Okay. And have you found that that comes about with not only just kind of, let's say, general practice, if you're just running a routine clinic, let's say, but also with things like specialisms, if somebody's thought during the training, oh, you know, given the opportunity, I'd like to go on and, and become a specialist in this area or develop my understanding and my um, uh, ability in this area. Yeah. And then after so long of maybe starting that, they think, oh, you know, I'm not really sure if this is going to be right for me. Yeah. Do you encourage people to kind of, you know, see it through before making any decision? Or do you think it's important to kind of, you know, when you feel get that sense of, of um, this isn't going to be right, calling it a day and, and trying to proactively find something new? How would you kind of um, guide people from there, do you think, Sally? Yeah. So, sorry, do you mean when they're going through their training? So before they've actually got to the, Yeah. 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 Um, again, there's no one size fits all. And, so, you know, the coaching that I do is about actually exploring what's right for that individual. So, again, mm. it's almost stripping it back to basics because it's very hard to say this is right or that is right, because, again, you're kind of narrowing it, narrowing it down. It's really working out, you know, where are you at now? What's what's going on for you? Mm. And it's I emphasize where you're at now because sometimes I think we can still think about what we wanted perhaps or what we envisaged when we were 17 and we applied to medical school mm. but actually you know what's going on in your life now what are your priorities now where are you at what's not working what's working and again looking at what you want instead so it's very it's very individual so some people might choose um, to, to carry on with their training depending on what has been identified as as the primary issue so I think the issues can be very different and sometimes there can be an overlap, but um, sometimes it can be 
more, less so around the actual job itself and more so around you know the very nature of medical training is there's a lot of self-sacrifice within there that's kind of mm. actually kind of how the NHS survives if we're honest isn't it in terms of you know yeah. people giving and giving and giving of themselves um, and I think that can then blur into actually you know as doctors we're not necessarily the best at setting clear boundaries um, because they've kind of been it's kind of being driven out of us um mm. i also think you know we're generally not very good in terms of self-care and i know you've had people on your on your show talking about that so i won't go into that in detail but yeah you know in terms of some of the some of the basic things often, often get missed in terms of looking after ourselves so sometimes it can be less about the job and more about the things surrounding the job sometimes mm. it is more about the job and, and just actually the fit isn't right so yeah, there is no one size fits all. It really depends on on the individual and what's coming up. Yeah, I suppose that in that regard as well, it's it's not even just um, for our listeners' benefit the individual in the sense of you know what they might want to pursue or um, you know what the practice itself might be like, but where they're at in their lives, you know whether they're starting a family yeah. or if they've got you know. I mean, I, I've spoken to um, a GP just recently, for instance, who's had sick family back home um, yeah. overseas. You know, and that that can affect so many right. things because there's a lot of uncertainty, and also it's the time that it takes to get to and from. So, like you say, it it really does come down to the individual. Um, yeah. But do you feel that there is kind of a bit of a stereotype as to this? This is what a GP should do, and this almost, like you say, um, one size fits all attitude towards it. But in reality, that is very far off the mark. I think I think one of the issues with medicine still now is that there are very traditional clear cut pathways through medicine and mm. you have to make the occasional choice along the way, obviously, like, you know, do I go into general practice training or whatever, but it can feel then a bit of a treadmill and you can feel a little bit blinkered because mm. You just you make that decision and then you get on it and you, you you know at some point you kind of get spewed out the end. And I think that that is the point at which sometimes people think, hang on a minute, <laughs> I you know I've just spent however many years getting here. And um, and the truth is it's very difficult to know until you've had a decent exposure to something, you know whether it is the right thing fit for you or not. Um, so I I think. You know that can happen that actually sometimes you get to a point you think i'm actually just not quite in the right place for me um and it's mm. then working out you know where is the right place yeah so it's that self-awareness that i think is very important yeah um i think going off what you've mentioned as well in terms of how you know the nhs operates and not necessarily deliberately in that you know this is how yeah, it's yeah. designed to set up but where it's yeah. got to now it's in such yeah. a position whereby it's um it, it does depend on the goodwill and the you know the goodness of heart shall we say of yeah. of these individuals who are gps um you know whether it's staying staying that extra bit late on a friday to deal with somebody before the weekend comes in or whatever it may be um it's not something that i think can last forever no. um because as you say you know there are really quite startling statistics of num uh, of gps rather that are you know leaving the profession or taking early retirement um yeah. i mean what what we found sally i don't know if, if you found this from you know, people that you've been dealing with yourself on um on a one-to-one -one basis but a lot of people are leaving the nhs to try and find private work or mm. they're going into locum work 
because of the flexibility and that brings us back to people's individual circumstances um yeah. the, there's a chap i've dealt with recently for instance who said um i've got my kids on the way and I, uh, well, sorry a second kid on the way and i want to be paying for a wedding locum work it gives me more flexibility around the children yeah. it pays better um do you find that uh, sometimes you know maybe the locum route is is better depending on circumstances or do you think the support of more of a um, uh, let's say a salary gp position and having that employment of a practice mm. can be better or again is it very much down to the individual in their yeah. circumstance you knew i was going to say that didn't you it's yeah, yeah. It's, <laughs> <laughs> it is i think it's so individual um because we are all different and we all thrive in different environments and in different ways um so for example like you say if someone you know values that flexibility and that sense of freedom that you can get with that locum work um and it fits in with the rest of their life at that time that that could work out well for them but other people, for example, actually could find that quite isolating and that sense of team or being part of a team is really important to them, you know, in which case a more regular environment may well suit them better. But again, as I say, it is so individual and it's not until you really explore it with the individual that you, you start to tease out actually what is what are the options going forward that are going to work, you know, are going to work well for you. Um, yeah. So I so I think yeah, I think it is really really variable, but it, it all comes back to going back to who am I? What is going to work for me um, in this particular situation? And which you know which options are viable options that are, that, that are going to be potential routes? Because there's you know one thing I always emphasise is I think we can also get weighed down by thinking there is one right thing for me to do, and mm. I need to find that one right thing. But actually, when you work out what it is that you are looking for, and when I say what you're looking for, I don't necessarily mean I don't mean a job title. I mean, what are you looking to get out of your career? How do you want your career to fit into the rest of your life? You know, what drives you and is really important to you? Once you get a bit clearer on that, um, there are actually different ways that you can get there. And I think that's quite freeing in itself without thinking, it's like trying to find a needle in a haystack, you know, oh gosh, there's one right way for me, I've got to find it. You know, again, I think that can put people off starting. So actually working out where you want to go, there are different ways to get there. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. I think in terms of one of the points that you'd mentioned as well, uh, prior to our conversation, was looking at stepping up to a new role and what pressures might come with this. And you, you gave me the example of uh, first fully qualified GP role. Yeah. And in your experience, do you, do you feel that there is almost this um, idea around what it, it should be, but then it can work out very differently? Or do you think that the individuals um, themselves, you know, these, these newly qualified GPs might be going into it with slightly the wrong ideas? What's what's been your experience in the, the conversations you've had about this sort of um, you know stepping up into that new role, Sally? Yeah, I, again, I think it's very variable, and I think it can depend on you know the practice you find yourself in. So whether it, again mm. it's the right practice for you, whether it's the kind of support that you're looking for, um, because you know all practices are very different, aren't they? They run very differently. They can have a different feel, different ethos. Um, so yeah. sometimes it's about yeah, which is the right type of practice that I'm I'm looking for. But I think regardless, actually, that step up from essentially being a trainee to being fully qualified and, you know, particularly in general practice, because it's so broad, it's a it's a big step up. And I think it feels like a big, um, yeah, it's a big shift in responsibility. And I think what can happen sometimes, for example, I've certainly come across this is, 
is relatively newly qualified GPs looking around at you know GPs 10, 20 years down the line or whatever, and actually comparing themselves, thinking, oh, you know, I'm, I, I, they know what they're doing. I don't know what I'm doing. Or, you know, um, but of course, it's that's not a light comparison, is it? And you know, generally speaking, comparisons are, are not a helpful thing to do. But I think you know, it's it's natural to have that self doubt. Um, mm. But it's it's recognizing it for what it, it is and actually working out how to to move forwards with that because we're always going to have self doubt is always going to you know play in our mind. Mm. But I think perhaps what I mentioned to you before is sometimes imposter thinking can sneak in a little bit as well. I was just about to ask about that. Yeah, yeah. would you say that this links in with imposter syndrome? Yeah. Yeah, it would, and I think um, it, it's funny that I use the term imposter syndrome even though I'm not massively fond of that term in itself because it it sounds quite labeling I think um Mm. I think I think it can also you know sometimes organizations can hide behind imposter syndrome to almost shift the responsibility you know for for systemic issues onto the individual and and it can reflect a lack of diversity but I guess what I'm talking about is more it's more that imposter critic you know so so at the thinking level so you know the way I sometimes explain it. You know we've all got our we've got our comfort zone where we you know we do things which are routine to us and we're comfortable doing them and it's it's a great place for rest and recuperation. But you know outside of that we've got our stretch zone and actually that's where you know you know our existing skills and abilities are stretched essentially and that's where learning and growth happens. But kind of sitting on the periphery of the comfort zone in between the two is, is your inner critic or imposter critic that voice of self-doubt or sometimes people call it their gremlin or their mind monkey um but you know we've, we've all got it whatever it, whatever you want to call it we've all got it um yeah and i what it can do is it's very good at you know in an imposter situation at feeding you thoughts like you know uh, you're not good enough um you're a fraud um you know you're you're not you're not the right person to be doing this job lots of unhelpful thoughts that if you then believe them to be true and I think this is where we can you know you know make a difference that results in feelings which is often feelings of fear which will be around Mm. you know you fear being judged or you fear that you're going to fail um and then you know as a result from that so your feelings lead on to your you know your behavior and how you show up and so often it can feed into it can certainly feed into perfectionism um so you know because of that fear of failure people just start working harder and harder and longer hours and it can be quite overwhelming and exhausting it can also feed into you know stagnating in your job a bit because actually you don't look for opportunities to potentially diversify your career or you know for new roles because that fear stops you from actually putting yourself out there in case it you know in case it doesn't work out there's always that you know what if it doesn't work and um we're not so good at thinking what, what if it does work um mm. so i think that you know that kind of thinking it can happen throughout our careers it's not just when we have job changes and things but I think it can particularly kick in at times when you have kind of stepped up um, and then it's it's recognizing it for what it is and, and managing it it sounds to me and, and please do forgive me if I've if I've misunderstood this I mean I'm, I'm far from a clinician myself Sally but um, what you've mentioned there about this this imposter thinking and that can lead you to try and almost overcompensating by you know doing extra work and working late and you know, maybe even taking admin home and then that starts to influence yeah. your family life and so on. Do you think it it can be things like the imposter thinking that is almost the catalyst that can lead to things like burnout? Mm. GPs? 
I definitely think it can contribute because of that, you know, that that cycle that you get into of um, working harder and harder and you just get more and more exhausted from it and it can be quite overwhelming. Um, mm. I think that could definitely kind of lead in, lead into burnout, which again is why it's so worth being aware of it because, you know, there was a time and I don't think I realised that kind of thing, you know, stuff. I didn't realise that it existed, to be honest with you. Um, and, you know, now when I look back on my career, there, was, there were definitely times when actually that was what was going on, but I didn't recognise mm. it for what it was. I didn't yeah. realise that lots of other people have exactly the same experience and they certainly have those same kind of thoughts. I didn't know that, so therefore I didn't speak to anyone about it. Um, mm. And it's actually much harder to, to manage it when it's in your head. It's so much easier when you get it out and, and talk to somebody about it. And, and again, like I said at the beginning about not being alone, if you're questioning yes. your career, I would say this to anyone who you know has those kind of thoughts is you are absolutely not alone. Um, mm. But it's really helpful to talk to someone. Absolutely. And I, I think that in part is probably likely to do with the fact that you know, as time progresses, we talk more and more about mental health and, you know, particularly for, for men as well, you know, they're more yeah. encouraged to talk about their mental health now and just yeah. health in general. Um, but I suppose uh, many times in the past, even within the last decade and, and before that, there is probably still that sense of, um, again, for want of a better word, really, a bit of a stigmatism around yeah. the sense of, I am a GP, I'm here to take care of people, I'm taking care of people, yeah. I'm fine. And you don't really talk about these things yourself and yeah. things like that. And like you say, burnout is probably something that has been around for decades. But it's yeah. kind of, again, for want of a better expression, the, a buzzword at the minute in that, you know, it is out there. It's, it's um, um, in regular conversation within primary care to a degree. I mean, a number of yeah. GPs I speak with are leaving their jobs because they feel burnt out yeah, um, yeah and I yeah. would imagine it's you know something you've come across as well Sally uh yeah absolutely because you know in terms of contributors to burnout I mean I think there's many different contributors but certainly finding yourself in a career that maybe isn't the best fit for you for you know for whatever reason be that the specialty or clinical medicine as a whole you know you spend a lot of your time working so you know that can definitely contribute to it I think it's brilliant that there is much more of a narrative around it now because um, I, I think it's so important that we're talking about it. And like you say, traditionally, I think there has been this, you know, doctors are a bit superhuman. And so, um, you know, that there hasn't been, you know, when I think of my training and even training that doctors go through now, there isn't very much emphasis on actually looking after yourself and reaching yeah. out for support when you need it. And I would really, really love that to change because at the end of the day you know you can't you can't be everything to everyone without looking well you can't be everything to everyone full stop but you need to be able to look after yourself you know to look after others so i think again yes. doctors are perhaps not so good at recognizing actually just to look after themselves because why wouldn't you sometimes framing it in terms of actually everyone benefits if you look after yourself if that helps them get on board with the idea absolutely um, because everyone does benefit it's not it's it's not just themselves that in itself is a good enough reason to be doing it yeah. but actually you know your, your, your colleagues benefit your patients benefit your loved ones benefit um I, I do think that just and i think it's increasingly get getting out there there needs to be more narrative around that it's so hugely important to to look after yourself as a doctor absolutely 
Um, just excuse me one moment. I just need to plug my laptop in because otherwise the battery is <laughs> going to die. Um, my apologies. Um, yeah, just going off what you've mentioned there, though, uh, again, Sally, I think it's a case of that if if you look after yourself, you're in a better position both physically and mentally to then deliver better levels of care to your patients who, at the, you know, they're your charge at the end of the day. That's what you get into or what you what most people will get into medicine for because they have that desire to take care of people and look after them and, and help make the the population healthier um but i do think it's very easy to not talk about these things and mm. as, as i say you know i think there's you may have come across this yourself with people that you've dealt with but i think that the population are very quick to criticize doctors you know they're, they're not working long enough or you know <laughs> i didn't have a long enough consultation they'll find every reason to, mm-hmm. to um, discredit them and to complain but they're very rarely given positive feedback yeah and i think that's probably something that leads to a sense of unhappiness in the role because they don't feel as though you know all the effort they've gone through to, yeah. to train and learn they get to this position and then you know they, they might have a nice experience with a patient don't yeah. ever hear anything of it again and then you have one patient who decides to leave a google review or ring the practice and complain yeah. it could be anything and i don't think there's that sense of understanding that these gps are human beings as well yes um, yeah 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 you know is that something you've found absolutely yeah yeah completely um it's certainly something I think, I think it reflects where society's at as a whole, if I'm honest with you, that, you know, we're quite quick to complain about things, but we're not so good to give positive feedback. So I guess it's an extension of that. I think it can feel hard because you are giving your absolute all. And often it feels like you're, you're not getting, when I say you're not getting much back, you don't go into it to get things back from it. But it is lovely, of course, and it's very motivating to get positive feedback. Absolutely. And I, th- I think, you know, it doesn't happen for a variety of, of reasons. But, you know, for example, not long ago, someone, you know, that I know locally, just um, I, I just saw her, hadn't seen her for a while. And for some reason she mentioned, and this had happened about five years ago, an occasion that I'd come across her in the hospital. She'd been visiting a relative. Um, I, I recall that she was upset and, and she, she started telling me how much that had meant to her when she'd met me in the corridor, which, and, but at the time she was too emotionally, you know, it, so, uh, you know, it, she was distressed. So she, she couldn't articulate it at the time, but mm-hmm. sometimes I think I have to, you know, certainly when I was working clinically, I had to remind myself that there is, there is a lot of that sense of being valued that isn't expressed. It is there. It's a bit like actually when you leave a job, that's another thing I've found that you'll suddenly get letters from patients that know you, um, you know, who are giving that positive feedback, but just don't on a, on a day to day. And, yeah. um, but it is demoralizing because in certainly within the media, I think, um, you know, there is a lot of negativity around it. Uh, uh, you know, yes. and when you see the other side of that, it's really quite hard to listen to some of the media reports. Um, yeah. It's, yeah. It's, uh, it's that sense of, you know, bad news sells in the media. Um, and I think, you know, whether it's a panorama mm. investigation or you get, you know, different articles and um, saying, you know, GPs are um, they're working remotely and they're not available for face-to-face mm. and things like that. But, I don't think there's a proper understanding of it. And then you get the, no. head, the headline things, you know, saying uh, GP waiting list off the scale or whatever it might be. Yeah. There's this instant, and you mentioned this yourself in, in terms of kind of how, what society's like, there's this instant sense of 
oh well that's not good enough that you know that's yeah. let's be negative about this and there's a lack of attempt to understand this yeah yeah and then you know the gps get a bad rep because they're the most common well most commonly known position within primary yes. care and it, it's yeah. this vicious cycle isn't it yeah um which isn't isn't right at all and it isn't fair on gps because as i say it leads to them having a lot of grief and unfortunately something that you know leads to unhappiness which then eventually yeah. becomes them wanting to leave the profession yeah absolutely and i don't think there's any recognition of the link between the two is there you know by the general no. public arguably on many occasions actually it's like with any profession isn't it there's only so much berating you can do until well, they up and leave because why would you stay if actually that's the you know that's the the negativity yeah. surrounding the, a very important job that you're doing um, exactly yeah, yeah, I have to bite absolutely. my lip quite frequently. <laughs> yeah, I, I can imagine though, and, and it, it's frustrating when we have, um, uh, both myself and a multitude of colleagues, we can have a conversation with a GP, and you know they can talk to us about what the the day to day is like. And I mean, I spoke to a GP yesterday, in fact, and she's seeing twenty patients per session at the moment she's expected to deal with 40 patients in a day mm-hmm. and you know she's she's just had her head down and she's grafting and she's working hard but she said to me look i, I feel guilty for wanting to leave and and, and find a, yeah. a better job you know she's commuting yeah. 45 minutes each way she's dealing with 40 patients a day yeah. some of them are you know naturally very unappreciative and, and can be rude and things like that yeah um and i just don't think there's enough appreciation for GPs regardless of how many patients they're seeing in a session you know it's still yeah. it's still a tough job even if you're only seeing 5 10 15 well, patients in a session I totally agree with you it's a hugely tough job it's such mm. a tough job you know there's it's so broad there's such a lot of responsibility um it is huge and actually coming back to you mentioned there about the guilt that's another thing that I would say is something that comes across all, all the time is that you know those when you're starting to question whether or not you actually want to stay within clinical medicine because the cost is becoming too high on an individual level but then as a double whammy the guilt kicks in as well and it's that guilt of mm. you know I should be doing this I should be working as a doctor and again I think that can stop people and it's quite hard on your own to work through that um, yeah. but it's, it's really I'm glad you raised it actually it's really common that you know those feelings feelings of guilt and the other thing is sometimes people people feel um that they're failing because they don't want to carry on in the career and and again you know there's carrying on when you've got all those feelings and not actually having the opportunity to work you know work out actually where do you want to go with that is is quite um it's quite debilitating yeah i think it's that sense as well of um with almost as i say that sense of guilt um the practices themselves can sometimes add to that um you know, by saying, oh, if, if you leave, you're letting the patients down and things like that. But, you know, sometimes it's the practices that need to change and they should feel guilty for overworking their GPs. But then it can come yes. down to factors like they might be thinking about numbers and finances and quaff scores and whatever it may be. Yeah. Um, the the GPs themselves are not properly taken care of. Um, and even other professionals, you know, nursing and allied health professionals as well. Yes. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, absolutely. I think it, it, you can get into a bit of a vicious cycle where actually you've got a whole load of people who are kind of operating in their stress zone and actually that, you mm. know, impacts, it impacts across. I think what you have to do as an individual is think about, you know, what do I, what do I need? What, what is, what do I need to thrive? And actually it, it may be that actually you can't stay within that practice work. If that's the, if that is the wrong practice for you and it is impacting your you know your mental well being, then something's got to change. Um, yes. 
that that is what I would definitely say is don't stay stuck with you know something that is impacting you and and costing you your mental well-being and seek help sooner rather than later um, yeah. because I think the other thing doctors certainly do and in fact probably healthcare professionals as a whole is you know you kind of you know you're on a downhill trajectory um, and there's a temptation to think well I'll just wait it's not that bad it's not that bad I'll just wait until I hit rock bottom that you don't obviously articulate that in your head but I think that's kind of what yeah. goes on it's so much easier to get help when you realize that things are slipping down rather than to wait until you're rock bottom absolutely and um in the podcast that I recorded with um uh, the lovely Dr Clara Doran um when we discussed burnout specifically she mentioned to me that you get to a point as you're heading toward burnout where it's, it's too late you know, it, it's going to happen. You can't necessarily, well, there's still things you can do, but, you know, you are getting to that point. Whereas, as you've mentioned yourself, Sally, if you act on it straight away, yeah. something can be done. Um, but it, it's also com- comes down to the sense of, you know, practices need to have a rethink and rejig things because they need to appreciate that in certain circumstances, they are mm. putting too much pressure on the team. Yeah, yeah, um, yeah. I, 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 spoken with a practice just recently in fact in Haywards Heath that um, they've recently increased all GP appointments to 15 minutes whether it's over the phone or or in person instead of it all being 10 minutes that's made a big difference they're bringing in extra admin staff to take away um, uh, the admin responsibilities from the GP so they can focus on the clinical one-to-one that side of things so things can be done yeah Um, but again I think if, if things aren't done then GPs are put in this position where they are made to feel a little bit guilty if they even think about going elsewhere. Yeah, absolutely. And I think actually the the other thing I would say is to articulate what you want. You know, if you're working within a practice, I think there's a temptation to think, oh, they're not going to go for that. You know, that that's this is very much a thing. Actually, you know, I always remember my mum saying when I was younger, well, if you don't ask, you don't get, you know, what have yes. you got to lose by asking? Um, and it may well be that they're like, no, that doesn't fit in with whatever. But actually, um, bearing in mind that there are, you know, it's it's difficult retaining doctors at the moment. If there is something that you think is going to make a difference to to whether or not you stay within that practice or, 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 or look elsewhere or, or whatever, you know, what have you got to lose by asking? Um, yeah, absolutely. And I think that that, brings us to things as well just going back to what you mentioned earlier about how it can be so individual and you know circumstances are different I speak to more and more GPs now who might be asking for a term time contract or if they can um, you know base it around the, the, the kids schooling or if it, even if it's things like can I leave at half past two do the school run and then make some calls from home yeah, um, yeah. and thankfully there are practices that are becoming more open to something like that yeah um, uh, but then you still get those as well that say, no, nope, you have to be here 8 to 6.30. You only get X amount of time for your lunch break. You've got to do, do your home visits over your lunch break as well. And yeah, there's still yeah. too much pressure there. But uh, I think there's this sense of you're a GP. You should be able to handle it from some practices. They don't actually appreciate that, again, that GPs are human beings. And um, yeah it's not an easy job it's really not an easy job and and we all do it differently and you know we've all got different styles of doing it and and that's brilliant because it would be very boring if we did everything the same Um, you know it it really would but um I think one of the tools that I use actually when when I'm working with people around their career is something called a disc um it's a personal assessment tool and it looks at um you know different styles of behavior because actually human behavior within limits is, is actually fairly predictable. So, you know, people tend to um, uh, 
it tends to affect how people communicate or um, how they organize their lives, um, you know, how they prioritize. And actually knowing where you sit within that framework is quite useful. In fact, it's very useful because mm. and we can all, you know, dial up and dial down behaviors. That's the great thing about it. But yeah. we will all have a natural go-to tendency, which is, you know, which is the style that for us is the least effortful, you know, it's the least energy consuming. Mm. But what they what you find when you do this is that actually sometimes the way people feel they have to flex their style to be successful in their work environment, if they are significantly having to flex away from their natural style constantly, that's actually quite exhausting. Um, and and again, that's something that you know flags up sometimes when you when you see that and just think, you know, not necessarily, but often it is, and particularly when you're working in a very hard job like general practice, if you are constantly having to flex your style, that in itself is just really quite tiring. Yeah, it takes you away from being the sort of clinician you want to be as well, I suppose, does it? Yeah, absolutely. And I mean, and a, a, a common example I come across is, you know, one of the, the ways that we're all different is, you know, some people tend to prefer a faster pace, which will often correlate with being more outgoing. Some people tend to prefer a slower pace, which will correlate with being more reserved. And mm. actually, the you know, the, the you know, the more reserved, the time. I mean, the time pressures in general practice are immense, regardless. Um, but actually, if you are somebody who your natural tendency is to prefer to just take a bit more time, you know, time to make a plan, come up with a you know, work out what you're going to do, be a bit more holistic, you know, take other factors into consideration it's really quite hard to maintain that um, in the, you know, 10 minute slots that are back to back. Um, mm. So again, it's, you know, when you look at that, it often helps people recognize maybe where there's a bit of a dis disconnect going on. Okay. Yeah. That, that, it's fascinating. And I think it, it is a point that is very relevant up and down the UK, um, regardless of, you know, whether it's a newly qualified GP and experienced GP, I think this is something yeah. that, you know, I, any of our listeners would find very, um, very interesting. Um, a point that I'd like to to touch on as well, Sally, is something that we discussed beforehand is the potential for career diversification. Um, yeah. What could you tell us a little bit more about that, please? Yeah, I mean, that's something that comes up, you know, not infrequently um, with GPs. And I think, you know, portfolio careers have been, you know, they've been around for a while. And I think increasingly, mm. um, you know, are, yeah, in, increasingly being used as a you know form of career diversification and i think i mean i would caveat it to say they're not it's not for everybody um but actually they do potentially bring quite a lot of advantages um and when i say portfolio careers so for some people that might be it's about essentially how working your working week within more than one role so often people will have a primary medical role so their, their gp work um but then they will have you know other time during the week where they are um you know working in another area of interest so that might be something still within the medical world so it might be you know teaching or you know medical education uh, or maybe something health tech related you know something allied or sometimes it can be something kind of totally outside of um medicine um like um someone i know who's uh works part-time as a yoga teacher so it's it can be what you make of it but i think well, I, I mean, one of the things I find with the doctors I work is that one of the things it can feel like it's lacking when they're just working within general practice is that sense of autonomy. Um, and I think that's what kind of portfolio careers can potentially increase your sense of autonomy because you're working your working week based on, you know, what you have chosen to do with it. Um, 
which is really quite useful. I think it can give you that sense of freedom as well. It, it, it highlights the fact that actually you don't just have to rely on, you know, clinical medicine, GP, your eggs are not all in one basket, if you see what I mean. And I think that in itself is quite freeing. And often what seems to happen is that people then actually enjoy their primary medical role more than they did when they were just mm. doing it more intensely. So I think it's it's a good way to, you know, explore other avenues and potentially increase your enjoyment. The other thing actually that does come up a lot with um doctors it's something they feel is lacking is is creativity or a, a way to use their creative side and okay. i which again i hadn't realized how common this would be but it does come up a lot that you know creativity is very broad isn't it there's so many different ways that you can be creative um mm. and i yeah often doctors just feel that that's lacking in their day-to-day -day kind of clinical work um, and so developing a portfolio career does allow you to potentially pursue that side of things and alongside you know variety some people love variety again not everyone but lots of people do and it can just give you a bit more balance across your week as well in terms of you know as we've said those days in general practice are really quite intense you know they can be quite stressful it, it can give you a bit of a, a stress buffer in a way because you're having some of your working week is not in quite such an intense environment so i think yeah i think there's lots of advantages yeah and i i, I know it comes back to the old saying of variety is the spice of life but I think it, it, it applies to GPs as well. Um, yeah, yeah. Because even within general practice, um, I appreciate that, you know, some GPs like to go on and specialise and do certain things. But what tends to be the case now, from my experience from speaking to GPs and practices, is that very often GPs in this generalisation of a, you know, clinical professional yeah. will end up seeing purely more kind of the, the more... Um, uh, oh, the word escapes me now, but the, the more serious things, you know, the yes, things that might yeah. be more comp uh, complex, that's the word, yeah, yeah. Um, the more complex cases. Yeah. And then things, physicians like your ANPs, your paramedic practitioners, physician associates, they might be past the more routine, let's say, yeah. ear, nose, throat, coughs, colds, things like that. So even within this role that is designed to be a general practitioner, it becomes yeah. quite specific because it, I appreciate, you know, there's a variety of, of complex cases, but they end up dealing with almost yeah. purely complex appointments yes. and yeah. you know they, they lose that variety again yeah I think you lose that variety and actually the intensity of the work you're doing also increases at the same time because constantly dealing with complex cases you know if you're back-to-back -back dealing with them and often potentially supporting you know allied uh, health professionals in in terms of you know supervising them and what they're doing mm. It's it's really it's really quite intense, isn't it? And I think that is why you know it feels that it's even harder in general practice now than it used to be because of the complexity of the cases that you're managing and the fact that there's you're not getting a sneaky little sore throat in the middle or whatever, you know. You're, so you know there's no catch up potential. You know it, it it is that that complexity I think is really significant, which again is why that you know that more portfolio approach can be helpful because you're not having that intensity across your entire week um yes so i i think I, I certainly think it's something worth exploring as i said it's not it's not for everyone um no I think obviously you have to factor in you know the financial security stability side of things and i think you have to be you have to be quite careful in terms of if you're already feeling a little bit overwhelmed what you don't want to do is increase your overwhelm um yeah so, so you need to be a bit careful and you need to be quite clear on, you know, boundary setting as well, kind of in terms of, of the different roles. Um, 
but it, as I say, for some doctors, it works well. And, and I think like you alluded to, the, I think some it, there is that variety that you mentioned, um, You particularly perhaps when you've been enrolled for a while, actually you just get stuck in a bit of a rut. And, and you're just, as well as it being quite intense and quite stressful, you can actually reach a, a point of where you feel like you're not learning anymore. So, so I guess, like I said, you, you're back in your comfort zone and actually just kind of moving out a bit into your stretch zone and learning something mm. new, um, that keeps you engaged and it keeps you motivated. So I think it can be quite helpful if you, you know, often people talk about a bit of a mid-career slump. Um, that's certainly well recognised that you've been doing something for a while and you just no longer feel that you're developing or growing. So I think it can yeah. be useful in that situation as well. Absolutely. Uh, even if you know there is somebody who, for instance, might want to pursue a particular specialism, to a degree, there's only so much you can learn, and then you get to that point where you feel yeah. like you've, you know, been there, done that, got the t-shirt, yeah, um, and you want to try and diversify and, and go into something else and and have this balance of you know the the initial specialist interest and anything new. Yeah, um, but I, I agree completely. I think that there is portfolio GP work is. Um, from from conversations I've had, it sounds very fulfilling for yeah. um, a number of individuals. Like you said, it's not for everyone, um, and sometimes it will never be quite right for certain people. But for those people that it is right for, mm. it seems to bring about that sense of happiness, which yes. I think is is the you know what's is key, and you know yeah, is what this, yeah. this podcast is about. We want GPs to be happy and and uh, feel yeah. fulfilled within their roles and. If a portfolio career does that for somebody, fantastic. But as you said yourself, Sally, so rightly, it's it's just not for everybody. It's um, not. And I think it's, you know, and that's why it, it's potentially worth exploring as an option. It's an option. Um, mm. Because like you say, I think for some people, it brings the enjoyment back. And, and that's what, what it's all about, isn't it? Um, yes. So it's worth exploring and just bearing in mind we're all individuals. And as I say, what's right for your colleague may not be right for you and, you know, uh, vice versa. Um, yes. You know, hence, it's always worth coming back to the individual and what is right for you at this point in time um, in the context of everything else going on in your life. Absolutely. Absolutely. Um, fantastic. Well, I think that covers everything that we were wanting to have a chat about today, Sally. Um, before we wrap things up, though, is there anywhere that um, any of our listeners could potentially, I, I don't know, we've mentioned LinkedIn, but can they connect with you or get in touch with you if they feel that they'd be um, interested in having a chat? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, I'm on LinkedIn. Um, as I say, my website is www.sallyhambly.co.uk and my email contact address is just info at sallyhambly.co.uk. Wonderful. Um, if any of our listeners are wanting to get in touch with Sally, you'd be able to do so. Um, we'll put a link to um, Sally's website and to her LinkedIn profile um, when we post this um, podcast online. Um, Sally, thank you very, very much for your time today. It's been uh, an absolute pleasure having a conversation with you and going through that information. Um, you'll be able to listen to our podcast on uh, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, um, uh, YouTube as well, and all the other uh, kind of usual podcast uh, locations. Um, thank you again for your time, Sally. It's been uh, really lovely to speak with you. Thank you very much. It's been lovely to speak to you too. Thank you very much. Take care. Bye-bye. You've been listening to the Illuminating Primary Care Podcast. If you enjoyed our podcast, please subscribe, review and share so others can find the podcast too. We really appreciate your support. 
If you're a practice looking to recruit permanent clinicians, such as GPs, nurses, or allied health staff, please get in touch at menloparkrecruitment.com or email james at menloparkrecruitment.com. For daily primary care news, please follow Menlo Park Recruitment on LinkedIn. Thank you so much for listening and we hope you'll join us next time for another episode of the Illuminating Primary Care Podcast.